morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Exodus. We are going to be in the book of Exodus for a few months now. Um, in fact, I even have a physical Bible up here this time um, because this morning we're going to be reading um, good news for everybody. We're going to be reading a lot more out of here, and you're going to be hearing a lot less from up here than normal. And so, uh, so if you have a Bible, open it up. You're going to be in it for a while this morning. In fact, we have so much scripture to read through in different very, various parts this morning. Um, I'm not going to put it up on the screen because it would just be too small and I'd be switching to the, yeah, I know. So uh, now you really got to get the Bible out of the phone or something. So don't let, you know, don't get too distracted. Um, and, uh, and we'll dive into this. Now, before we get in um, to our passage this morning, Exodus is such a well-known book of the Bible to people who aren't even Christians, who don't even know the Bible. I mean, if you're going to know some Bible stories, you're going to know some out of Exodus for sure, just like Genesis. Exodus is considered to be this really epic book of the Bible. We use that word a lot, epic, right? Because the scope and the scale of what happens there, uh, people describe it as being very cinematic because they make movies about it. And it makes sense that they would make movies about this because of these just incredible things that happen, right? The scale of what happens is huge. And then on top of that, it is, it is account after account of a God supernaturally sort of miraculously intervening in the course of, of human life and human history all, like continually throughout. And so there's so many aspects to it that while it's really big and awesome and exciting, it can feel a little bit detached for us. We just spent a few months in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we were... Uh, in it, we were constantly, uh, Jesus was constantly talking about things that were just completely normal to us, right? It was like normal everyday stuff, stuff that we see and deal with all the time that we can relate to that's not that much of a stretch for us. But Exodus is totally different, right? How many of us have been in the middle of an ocean when it's parted and we walk through to the other side? How many of us have, uh, you know, been a part of a migration of hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people out of a land of enslavement? How many people here have had Food fall from the sky and, uh, you know, had water come out of a rock and uh, had a pillar of fire light guide your way in the, in the middle of the night. Uh, probably none of you. Um, if you have, then that's your, you know, you should go to the doctor or something because that's not normal stuff that's happened. Uh, some of you have never seen the sun. How about that? But, uh, but the sun's out now. But the sun's in Exodus and there's a lot of it, right? Uh, there's a lot of things in Exodus that we encounter that were like, I've never experienced anything like this. I've never been to a place like this. I've never seen things like this. And it can be really difficult to connect with it, and especially to know what kind of an impact that has for us personally. And one of the things we're going to see as we study Exodus, and that's why I'm really excited about it, is that primarily when we look at a book like Exodus, the first question that we have to ask ourselves, we're going to ask ourselves every single week is, what does this tell us about who God is? What does this tell us about who God is? Because the more uh, that we know about who God is, the cool thing about that is then we also do end up learning quite a bit about who we are and the way we are as well. Um, and then we even can get to a point of saying like how it actually changes the way that we live, just knowing that this is who God is. This is what's true about God. Uh, the central message of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, is what Jesus refers to as the law, um, is that God is good and that he demands that we be good. And this is the only belief, says one Jewish scholar, that will enable the world to be good. The only belief that will enable the world to be good is if 
The world cannot be a good place ever. We can never hope for anything even close to that unless the people in the world are good people. And the people in the world, according to the Torah, cannot be good um, unless God himself is good and unless we know who that good God is. And so that's why it's so important that we study something like this. Now, before we go to Exodus, we're going to go a little bit back, and we're actually going to go to the very end of Genesis, because um, interestingly enough, the very first word in the book of Exodus, in the original Hebrew, not in the English translations, but in the original Hebrew, the very first word of the book of Exodus is and, uh, which is, you know, bad grammar rules. You're not supposed to start a sentence with and. You're not supposed to start probably a whole book with and. Um, But the reason it's like that is because Exodus is essentially a continuation of what we're reading about in Genesis. And so I want to read the very end of Genesis, and then we'll jump into Exodus. It'll be uh, Genesis 50, verse 22 through 26. Genesis 50, 22 through 26 says this. So Joseph, you guys remember Joseph, you know who Joseph is. He's the guy with the dreams and the dream coat and all that stuff. This This is Joseph. So Joseph remained in Egypt... He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So that's the end of Genesis. Now flip over to Exodus. (coughs) And Exodus begins this way. In Exodus chapter 1. And we're going to look at the first first seven verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Okay, so right there, you all feel good because you're not me who's about to read all of these names from the sons of Israel. So let's see how I do here. Uh, who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Nebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So what we read about here is Joseph and his family comes into Egypt Uh, Now, what we know from Genesis is that this is a time of famine. So they've come into Egypt, and uh, and they've begun growing as a group of people. They started out as 70 people, would grow and grow and grow. It says here in verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, what's what's so interesting about this verse is some of the Hebrew words that are used here. The word used for fruitful... Uh, or the word used for, uh, yeah, for fruitful is this Hebrew word that we would pronounce sharats. And what that word means literally is to swarm or to teem with life, to breed abundantly. And that sounds familiar at all, the idea of swarming and teeming with life. 
uh, we would read something similar to that. In fact, the exact same word in Genesis 1.20 in the creation account that says, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. You see, what we're reading about here is creation language. And the reason that we're reading this is because uh, the author of Exodus, Moses, is making it very clear and telling us that this is an actual creation happening of a group of people. It's really the third creation that we see in the Old Testament. And what I mean, what I mean by that is that in the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve, right? And then eventually sin enters the world and things get really bad. And so God brings about a flood. And then after the flood, Noah's family, Noah and his family survive. And then what does God do with Noah and his family? Is he essentially has a new creation. He starts over with, with a bunch of other people. And then what we read about here is that God has gotten to a point where he has decided, as he told Abraham through their covenant, where he decided, I'm going to make myself known to the world, but this time I'm going to do it specifically through a nation of people, a group of people. And so he's got to create that nation of people. And so through Abraham and this language that we're reading here, which is really cool, he's saying that as these 70 people went into Egypt... At a time when you would not normally associate with lots of people multiplying, a famine, right? He's brought them into Egypt, and he is causing this group of people to grow exponentially, faster than even would really be normal, probably. And he's doing that to create an entire nation for himself. They're fruitful, and they're multiplying. It says they're fruitful, they increase, they multiply, they grow increasingly strong. So they're not just fruitful and increasing, but they're a strong people. They're a respectable people, probably, as a result of this. Now, the point here in this, the fact that God creates this nation of people, is this, that moving forward, God's going to use a group of people to be present in the world. And this is going to be really the, one of the most key things that we'll talk about in Exodus, that God has said, I'm going to use my nation, my group of people, and they are going to be the way that the world is going to know about me, that the world is going to see that I'm real. The world is going to see uh, who I am and what I'm about. And the more that those people remain essentially distinct, the more that they remain separate, the more that they remain holy, because holy means to be distinct or to be separate. The more that they do that, the more that they will show the world who I am. Their integrity, their faithfulness means that they can remain holy. And this is why our series is called Holy God, Holy People. Uh, because we're talking essentially about how holy and separate our God really is, like how different he really is from the world around us, and then how then different we must be as people if we're going to make him evident to the world around us. So we'll read on here. These people have, have begun multiplying and growing strong. And then we'll start reading in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if the war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses, but the more they were oppressed, the more that they multiplied, and the more that they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. 
So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So the Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh, has decided, I don't care who your family is or where you guys come from. I don't like the fact that you're growing so big and the fact that this is now potentially a dangerous thing for our country. And what's interesting about this is, uh, is the development of the way that Pharaoh will eventually start treating these Israelites. One of the things that we begin to see here is the tremendous amount of, of pain and suffering that can be caused by a single human being. And now this is something that we know all too well in the world that we live in. We know in this world that, uh, that, often in, that there have often been times over the course of history where one person, it seems, was responsible for so much suffering and death and pain and persecution when that person is put in charge, when that person is in charge, when that person has authority over a group of people and can wield that authority in bad ways. Now, what's so sad about this is where it starts for the, where it starts for the Pharaoh, because where it begins with him is it says from a place of shrewdness, and the shrewdness is really just uh, w- wisdom. It's just being wise. Hang on with me. It's just being wise. Shrewdness means to be wise. The Pharaoh stopped and he said, listen, we got this new nation of created people basically in our midst here. There's a lot of them. I don't want our enemies to win them over and for them to overtake us. I don't want them to ever grow to be bigger than we are, to more dominant. And it's said that they were really strong people. And so he was genuinely worried about this. So, you know, he sits around with the group of his leaders and probably goes, okay, let's be wise about this. Let's be shrewd about this. How can we control this group of people so that they don't end up hurting us or taking us over. And the result is slavery. But it's not just slavery, not just getting them to build things, but it's ruthless slavery. We see this again and again. And what this means is not just the tasks that they ask them to do, but it's the brutality of the way in which they made them do it. He broke these people. That was his goal. His goal was to keep these people as broken down as possible, to be unnecessarily cruel and mean, to torment them as much as possible and make them miserable as he led them, as they, as they forced them to be enslaved. And the goal of this was to keep this down, this group of people, to keep them from multiplying, really, to keep them from multiplying, to keep them from becoming influential, to keep them from becoming strong and developing resources of their own. What we see here is the beginning of a huge part of of the story of the Israelites, which is this, slavery. The Israelites are all essentially born into slavery. Their identity as a people, (coughs) as God's people, begins with being enslaved. Now, one of the reasons I think everyone kind of loves this book, Exodus, is because, I mean, Christian or non-Christian is because everybody likes the idea of this group of people who were enslaved one day, overcoming all of these obstacles and walking into the promised land, right? Walking off into the promised land and saying, thanks, God. Thanks for this beautiful land. Thanks for the water. Thanks for probably some animals that we can eat, you know, a lot of nice things. Thank you for the safety and security this provides us. We'll take it from here. You see, we love the idea of freedom, but the Israelites uh, 
were in slavery and bondage. And the freedom that they would ultimately come to receive is not just freedom from the Israelites. We read about this word slavery throughout the Bible again and again. We talked about it a lot in the New Testament. We were talking about, about Jesus and the, the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason that the Bible uses the language of slavery so much is because when we are not a follower of Christ, when we are not a child of God, we are living in slavery. Like, the only alternative to being with God is living in slavery. You may not know it, you may know it very well, but you're living as a slave to yourself, to sin, to the world. You are living as a slave if you're not with God. Now, we would like to believe, the enemy would like us to believe that there are three options, that there's follow God, you know, do all the bad stuff, and then maybe something in the middle where I can just be like, if you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone, and we won't bother each other. I just would like freedom. I just like to be free. I'd like to do my own thing. I'd like to live my own way. But Scripture tells us that that isn't freedom, that that's slavery. You see, what's important to understand about the Israelites is that the ultimate goal is, is to be free from Egypt so that they can serve God, so that they can be God's people, not just to be free so they can be free. Not just to be free so that they can build wonderful lives, that that's ultimately the goal of the story of Exodus, is that we get to, they get to go on and build these great lives and these great homes and have these great families and be free from the Egyptians. No, the, the, the story of Exodus is a story about a group of people who are born into bondage and ultimately will be redeemed and freed so that they can serve God, so that they can be a distinct group of people. And when they stop being distinct, what ends up happening to them is they begin losing the freedom that they have. But what's so interesting about this that we read about in this passage, and we're going to keep reading about this morning, is the fact that these people seem to thrive. They seem to keep doing well, despite all the stuff that Pharaoh's doing to them. This is an incredible part of the story of the Israelites in Exodus. The Pharaoh is making a very concerted effort to try to keep them down, and yet it seems that it's just not working, right? They keep multiplying, they keep being fruitful and growing, they keep being a strong people, and everything that he tries to do to stop that ultimately doesn't seem to be working. Now think about this for a second. Why would God allow his people to be enslaved for hundreds of years? Why would he allow these things to happen to them? It's only going to get worse as we read on. Well, if God's desire is that these people be distinct, that they reflect him to the world, how in the world would that happen? If God's people started out as 70 in Egypt, a, a great giant kingdom like Egypt, at a time of famine, where Egypt is one of the only places that has food. Because Joseph, through God's help, uh, helped the Egyptians store up all this food. So you grow up in this place. That's a pretty great place, maybe. There's food. A lot of other people don't have food. There's things to do. There's jobs. It's a pretty big kingdom. As far as you're concerned, you're an Egyptian. I'm an Egyptian. I was born here. I was raised here. Probably going to die here. Most were, and most did. So what kept this group of people distinct? I'll tell you what kept this group of people distinct. They were oppressed. They were enslaved by the Egyptians. What causes them to wake up every single day and say, no matter what, I can tell you one thing that I won't be, and it, and it is an Egyptian. I will not be a part of their kingdom. I will not be a part of their world because they are the very people that are enslaving me. That if the most important thing, if life and freedom comes from being distinct and being holy, 
especially for God's people, the Israelites, if that's true, then the single most important thing is that they remain distinct. And what happens in every other situation of the Israel's lives as a people? In every situation when things are going well, in every situation where they have things the way they want them, the people are prone again and again and again to wander away from God and to go back to just being like everyone else around them. Without this oppression led by the Pharaoh and the severity of it even, how would God's people truly have remained a solidified group of people saying, we know who we are. We are the Israelites. We are the, we are the ancestors of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Uh, and we are here as a group of people. And no one's going to pull us apart. And we're certainly not going to become like the Egyptians. Being holy is not easy. Being set apart is not easy. We kind of give a hard time to the Pharisees when we talk about Jesus, but the truth of the matter is that uh, the reason some of the Pharisees are so confused when Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors is they're going, hang on a second, aren't we supposed to be like, you know, holy and keeping ourselves kind of clean and not hanging out with riffraff and doing bad things with people? Uh, Jesus, why are you hanging out with all the bad people? You're going to be doing bad things right? It was a legitimate issue that people had to deal with. And that's a legitimate issue we have to deal with. How do we love like Jesus loved? How do we care about the people in the world? How do we care about reaching the lost while not actually becoming like the world, while not actually becoming and essentially losing our distinctiveness? We have no problem believing that religious people should live differently. Everybody believes that. Everybody believes that religious people are different. Oh, yeah, like you associated with religion. I was at the park yesterday for a t-ball game, and it was like a flood of people, and like a million t-ball games and baseball games, little league games going on, and there were these two Mormon missionaries walking around. And believe it or not, you could tell the difference between the two Mormon missionaries and everybody else outside because they had nice dress shirts on, and they had that look, and they had the, uh, they had the Mormon, the Mor- yeah, that look right there, no. And, and they had the, the Book of Mormon. Just, yeah, you've got it. You've got the look. And they had the Book of Mormon, and they were walking around, and they stuck out, right? They stuck out, and you look at them, and everybody looks at them and goes, religious people, that's a, whole, that's a holy person, right? Yeah, that, that makes sense. They're supposed to look different. Maybe they're supposed to be different. That's how we think. We think about all the rules that we're going to get to. Believe me, we're going to get to a lot of rules at some point in Exodus. We think don't drink, don't smoke, don't curse, don't watch, don't bad stuff, don't do bad stuff. And then Jesus came. He said a whole bunch of other don'ts. Don't hate, don't judge, don't, don't serve people just to get looked at and don't do things just so people are impressed with you or whatever. There's a lot that seems to go into what it is apparently to be Holy. What we see here with the Israelites is we see the extreme measures that God goes to in order to ensure that people can actually live differently. That God is actually ensuring that his people can be free to live differently. We don't just get to be free. We don't just get to be not slaves anymore. Someone has to pay the price for that. Someone has to redeem us. Someone has to pull us out of slavery and bondage just so that we can go on living free. And this is what we see here. So let's read on, though, because there's even more that's going to happen. Starting in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. 
but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. That's a really great line, isn't it? That's like brilliant that they thought of that. And they were like, uh, here's why, right? I would not have thought of something that good. So God dealt, with, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is one of the most horrible things that we read about in all of Scripture. It is where them becoming slaves, something that probably didn't seem like it could get much worse, gets much worse. We see the ruthlessness that we read about reaching a different level. You notice the way that Pharaoh does this is he first tells the midwives, the ones that are in charge of delivering these babies, and then eventually, because of what they tell him, he says, okay, fine, he just tells everyone in the whole nation, we are going to kill all the Israelite males that are born. We're going to throw them into the Nile River. We're going to murder them. And, and why? Because nothing else is working. Because he wants to keep this group of people down. He wants them to stop multiplying. He wants them to stop being a strong group of people. What we begin to see here that is so important is this is where it becomes very clear to us that Satan himself is opposing God's plans and his promises for his people. That God says, I have something to do in these people. And Satan's saying, well, I'm going to do everything that I can to not let you. And I'm going to use this Pharaoh to do it. And we begin, and we again see like the slow progress of this Pharaoh going from being a leader who began wanting to deal with this shrewdly and wisely to now a Pharaoh who is doing great, great, horrible atrocities simply because he's so fixated on this idea of keeping the Israelites under control, keeping them down as a group of people. But what we also see is what it is for people to remain faithful to God, even in times of tribulation. These, house, these, these, these midwives, it says they fear the Lord. They fear the Lord. It doesn't even say they love the Lord, but it says they fear the Lord. That they recognize that the power of their God is greater than the God of the Egyptians, which is a huge deal. You'll notice we don't even, uh, we get to see their names we know their names, and we still don't know the Pharaoh's name. Hasn't even mentioned the Pharaoh's name yet, just that he's Pharaoh. That's how significant they are in this story and the bravery that they have. And it says that God rewards them by giving them families of their own. And so we read on. I was going to stop after chapter 1, but I'm not over yet, and I have to go over. And, um, and I think that there's something that we've been talking about here that's kind of a progression and I think that it, 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 it culminates right here when we begin to read about the birth of Moses and what happens with him. So in chapter 2, we're going to read um, the first 10 verses of chapter 2. This now is the birth of Moses. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young woman 
walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughters, shall I go and call you a nurse from a Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to the Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. (coughs) This is such an incredible part of the story. That Moses' own mother, after hiding her son for as long as she can, sends him away in the river and is ultimately brought back by the Pharaoh's daughter who finds him and paid to raise her own child. during the most formative years of his life to then have him raised in the Pharaoh's household where he will ultimately be raised up and trained as a real leader, something that God will use. One of the things that we see when we get this far into the story is really simple, and it is this. It is that, like, all the time, God's going to win. God wins. He wins. That ours is not a God who is subject even to the laws of cause and effect. Because the Pharaoh is doing everything he possibly can to keep these people from becoming a people and staying a people and multiplying as a people. And we see all the way throughout that from the very beginning even, that God would use Abraham's wife, an old woman who is supposedly barren, to begin to form this nation with her child. And then you fast forward to even seeing Joseph and his arrest and, uh, and, 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 and imprisonment and everything that comes with that and what God does there. Then to see that during a famine, at a time in which his people, if they still lived out in Canaan, if they still lived out there, they would have probably perished in the famine or at least never been able to grow into a group of people because they wouldn't have had any food. That even in the midst of a famine, they are brought into Egypt and God provides a way for his people. And then once in Egypt, when the slavery begins, God allows them to be fruitful and to multiply. God allows his people to withstand so much persecution. And ultimately, God allows for Moses himself to be born and to be raised by his own mother to get paid for it. Again and again and again, every step of the way, we see that God is going to make sure that he wins. He's going to make it happen. And that ought to give us a lot of confidence. Because this whole idea of being distinct and being different isn't just about following different rules. It's about actually believing that things work differently than than most would believe that they work. Saying it really does not matter what is going on around me, that that doesn't mean that God can't still accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And in fact, oftentimes those two things don't even seem to be connected. Sometimes we see God moving and it's very clear. Other times we don't. Do you know one of the most absent things in these first two chapters of Exodus is God? He is mentioned very little in these first two chapters. Do you know why? Because that was what it felt like at this time. If you were an Egyptian, you were saying, where's this God of yours? And if you were an Israelite, you were saying, where is this God of ours? Is he in this? Is he real? 
If he is, if he's taking care of us, it sure doesn't seem like it. To be distinct is to believe and to know that our God works in a completely fundamentally different way from everything else in the way that it seems to work. That he is unaffected by chance and by odds and by likelihood. He is unaffected by history. That nothing dictates what God can ultimately do and what he wants to do and what he's going to accomplish. The question is, do we believe that? That is what it is to be really distinct, is to know that that's the way that things really work. To start from there and not simply follow new rules. So what I said before was that the book of, of Exodus is, is really about what God is like, about God himself, what he, how he manifests himself, sometimes very physically, to his people. And so we first have to ask that question, what does this tell us, all these first two chapters that we're looking at about what God is like? And first and foremost, we see that God is the creator. He's the one that made us. And he has gone to extreme measures to ensure that we can still see him, that we can know him, that he will be evident to us even in a world in which it seems like that wouldn't be the case. In a world that can get so messed up sometimes that we can look at and say, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, what, am I really supposed to believe in God? Like, how, why would I believe in God anymore? Like, why would anybody believe in God anymore? That he has continued to go through great lengths to make it possible for people to not only see him and see that he is real, but to believe him and follow him and know him. And so what does that tell us about us? It tells us that we are his. That he made us, but he also sustains us. If he is the creator, then we are his And he sustains us, and he brings us life. Exodus tells us that God is set apart. He is different, completely different. And so his people have to be totally set apart and different too. What does that tell us about us? It tells us that God's goal is not just that we be happy, that we be healthy and have easier lives. His goal is that we be his people and be set apart. That is a really hard thing for many of us to believe, to actually believe that the goal of all this is not just that things go better for us. There's nothing distinct about that. That's the goal of everything everyone's trying to invest in. And that there are times that God will use our circumstances to actually set us apart. There are times that God will actually allow things to happen in our lives that will keep us distinct, that will help us remain distinct. And that if we are focused on being the same as everyone else all the time, we will be miserable because we will fight it all the time. That when God begins to bring it about naturally in our lives, we will fight it. We'll be like, I don't want to be different. I want to be like everybody else. I don't want my life to look different. I want it to look like everyone else's. I mean, how much of our longings and fear is really ultimately rooted in that statement alone. I just want to be like everybody else, right? I want to have the same stuff. I want to have the same life. I want things to kind of go the same way. And how much we fall apart when we begin to realize that something might happen and we might not be able to be like everyone else. What Exodus shows us about God is that he doesn't play by our rules. He doesn't need things to go a certain way. He can do whatever he wants. He can make life out of death. That this is the God that we're talking about in Exodus. And so what does that mean for us? It means that we don't fear. 
It means that we will not be afraid because we know that our God doesn't work the way that other things do. This text teaches us that when God seems the most hidden, he's not. That when he seems the most absent, he is not. He's working for good and justice behind the scenes of even the worst tragedies. Now, if we want to be a church of people who are reaching the lost, who are reaching anybody with this message of hope, (coughs) if we have any desire to be able to be used by God in that way at all, then this is good news for us. Because what we read about here in Exodus in these first couple chapters is that salvation happens through the weak and through the powerless. It doesn't happen through the powerful. That's not his MO. Salvation doesn't come through powerful and authority. It comes through weak and powerless, and it comes through those who suffer. That's a consistent thing that we see in the Old and the New Testament of the Bible altogether. It's what we see. It's why Jesus, even with as powerful as he is, suffered. It's why Jesus, as powerful as he is, became weak and became powerless. God works for and with the poor, the marginal, the excluded, the oppressed. He works through weakness, not through power. He works through failure. He doesn't work through achievement. Now, that can either be one of the hardest things for us to wrap our mind around. The fact that ours is a God who works through those things that we don't want to be, that we don't want to deal with, or that can be a tremendous, that can be a tremendously empowering thing for all of us. God works through those who are too young, like me, and he works through those who are too old. God works through those who are sick and dying, those who are physically unable. God works through those who are not as intelligent as everybody else, it seems. And God works through those who don't, who don't always make the right decision even. Those who say, God cannot use me, I will not be used, the world cannot use me, I'm not that great. God works through those people, it seems, more than anybody sometimes. God truly can and will use those people. And that's an encouragement to us because that's what we see in these, in, these, in these Israelites, is we see a group of people that even though God is guiding them and protecting them, that they are completely marginalized, that they are, have all power taken away from them and stripped of them, even the power to have families and children. And that it is this group of people who have so much taken away. It is, it is, it is midwives And women, it is people at this time who had no power, who didn't do things of consequence at all, who end up making a difference for an entire nation of people and ultimately so that the world could know who God is. That's who our God is. That's who he uses. And we can find encouragement from that and we can find that empowering and we can find that comforting and we could also know that no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter how painful it is, that God is in that and that God wants to use that. That he wants to use it to keep us distinct, but that he also wants to use it so that people can know who he is. This is one of the hardest things for us to wrap our mind around, but it's true. So as we worship and as 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 we sing and as we actually take some time to really reflect on this stuff, if nothing else, let us just reflect upon who our God is, who we see that he is here in Exodus. 
that ours is a God who says, I will make my way, that I will find a way. How infuriating must it be to be the Pharaoh when you realize who this Moses guy is and how that all went down, right? I mean, every, he's like, everything I have done has not worked. I need new ideas. I need better ideas. Uh, Honestly, like, read the Bible and you'll kind of get an idea of, like, why it's not working. You are directly opposing God and you will not win. He will make it happen. That we, we, we can serve a God who is like that. That that can be incredibly empowering and that it can make us a courageous group of people even in circumstances that don't seem that way. That we live in a world where everything seems like it's falling apart and we look at it, big picture or small picture, and we go, what is happening? I do not understand it. And it certainly doesn't feel like this is the world in, where, in which God's going to work and make things happen. It probably was at one point. It probably was in another part of the world. But where does the gospel explode it explodes in places where it's not very easy to be a Christian, where there is a lot of suffering, where people are marginalized and poor. It'd be one thing to say it, ex- it explodes in places where people suffer and you go, yeah, it's just kind of a balm. It makes people feel better and it makes sense for them. No, the gospel explodes in places where, people are, where it's illegal for people to even be Christians. That when the leaders of the world now seek to oppress it, that the exact opposite happens. Again, if they read the Bible and they knew how it worked for Pharaoh, maybe they'd be like, uh, let's just tone it back a little bit. Let's just be indifferent maybe. And maybe, maybe that's like, that's really the best environment for it if you want it to fall apart, right? So just indifference is good. And so as much as we want to look at things and at life and at the world and feel discouraged sometimes, we have to recognize that that isn't at all how our God works and that he often works in times that seem dark and in times that seem difficult and confusing. And he doesn't work when it's all lined up perfectly and it's like, oh, well, obviously the next thing that will happen is God will do this thing. That's not ever the way that God seems to work and we could take comfort from that. Let's pray. Father, um, there's so much to thank you for that we read about in this text, God. Um, you're such a good God, and you are so much more in control than we often give you credit for. God, there's great evil in the world, and there's an enemy who does not want us to remain distinct and to show your holiness, and that doesn't want us to even be alive or be around. There's an enemy that wants for us to live enslaved, to live as slaves. But God, you call us to be a people who can be free so that we can live for you. God, our prayer, our prayer, God, is that you would give us the courage to truly, fearlessly follow you, God, regardless of what circumstances look like. Father, our prayer is that we would see you clearly in these chapters and that we would fall in love with the God that we see, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, we come before you and we sing that. It's hard for some of us to sing because we feel fear. But God, you call us to be a people who are a strange combination in this world of caring but unfearful. God, there's many around us who... Um, who don't fear, but it's because they don't care. 
And it seems like the more we care about things going on around us, the more we care about our lives, the more we care about each other, the more we're prone to fear. Father, you call us to be a people who love and care deeply for others, for the world, and yet to not be slaves to fear. And Father, the only way that we can do that is to be your children and to know who the God is that we're serving. God, we confess for many of us the reason that we're fearful is because we don't know enough about you to know to have confidence in you, to trust you, and that the answer to fear is not more of ourselves, but it's more of you, God. And so for, for many of us, that's our prayer this morning, God, that you would show us more of you, more of yourself, that we would understand you more, know you better, and through that, that we would not be afraid, Lord. Father, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.